0: Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast. Today we have two very special announcements. Number one, my guest on the show is the iconic writer A.M. Holmes. A.M. has been writing hero of mine for as long as I can remember. And I want to send a special shout out of thank you to Yvonne. Also, I want to mention that A.M. Holmes' amazing new novel, The Unfolding, has just been published in paperback, and it's a deep dive into our recent past history to understand how we got to our present horror-filled national landscape. I love this book, and I encourage you to go check it out. In addition to that, we discuss in detail A.M.'s iconic Barbie story. a real doll. This is the Barbie story that everybody needs to be reading and thinking about. And the second cool announcement that I have to make is, today is my birthday. That's right. Happy birthday to me. And if you want to give me a birthday gift, all you have to do is go over to Kurt Vonnegut Radio on Substack and subscribe. So please, Join me now as we enter the heart and mind of one of the great writers and artists of our time, A.M. Holmes. So with your Barbie story, which is so
1: complicated. What started innocently enough, I wrote it while I was a graduate student at the University of Iowa, and I was really just interested in how when I was growing up, my mother was like, Barbie's not an appropriate toy for girls to play with. You can't have a Barbie. She's too sexual. And so I wanted to write this theoretically innocent story about a boy who was dating a Barbie doll. And I went and got one, and I put it on the mantle in my apartment in Iowa City, and everyone who came over started doing things to Barbie. And the first thing every person did was they took off her clothes, and I was like, weird. Like, you come into my house and you undress my Barbie? What is that? And then they would confess. They would tell me things that either they had done to their Barbie, or that their sibling had done to Barbie. And so it immediately became a much more complicated and darker story about men and women, to sexuality, to all this kind of stuff that's just under the surface. And then when I finished the story, I remember I first workshopped it, not in Iowa, but I was at NYU for a while. And people said, oh, this story is psychotic. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? They go, it's psychotic. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And they're like, well, Barbie doesn't have a vagina, so it's not possible. Oh, too much information, like imagination, people. Yeah. that was interesting to me that they were taking it so literally. And then we tried to get the story published and Playboy wanted to publish it. And their lawyers said, oh, no, we can't publish this. You know, Battelle is very litigious. Yeah. yeah. And so all these magazines wanted to run it and all the lawyers were like, do not run it. And finally, this gay men's magazine called Christopher Street actually ran four of the stories from Safety of Objects which was a lot. It was like an AM home special issue, but I'm sure it had to be their worst selling issue of all time because what gay men's magazine has me on the cover? Like, hi.
0: You're seeing, oh, this is a very explosive topic, mm. really makes people express themselves.
1: What's funny and not funny is that throughout all of the things I've written, people always say, oh, you're trying to be shocking. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to talk about the world we're living in. And if it comes across as shocking, it means to me that it hit a nerve, and right. that just means that I got it right, because yeah. if you hit a nerve, that means there's something beneath that nerve that's already inflamed. So I think the Barbie thing was really a, an idea that was inflamed. What's fascinating, because now Barbie has come full circle. She's 62 years old right. as a creation, and I would say, as socially... We are Barbie. The American woman is now Barbie. The American woman is pushed and pulled to extreme, right, and has all kinds of editing done to themselves. And the very thing that we rebelled against has been embraced. And so the question is, how do women use their looks and their sexuality and also have a big career? People would be very upset with me for saying that, but there's no escaping the percentage of American women who are Barbie. And I think Barbie is us, too, so it also means that Barbie became, for lack of a better human and flawed. She still has the same messed up feet and problems with her hair, hasn't really realized her full potential yet, Well, she's getting there. How does
0: she feel about the Dobbs decision?
1: The Dobbs decision people being anxious about what within might do with their freedom and the need to control them. Men have
0: largely been more quiet than I would have thought. Have you
1: been surprised by that? Fundamentally, men are scared of women. They're scared of women's bodies. And yes, of course, it takes two to get pregnant, but they're like, oh, how'd that that," And it's always so, right. me? So I think that, yes, men need to speak up. Also, it's not like the decision to not have a child is an easy one. It's a huge one. Sure. And it comes with a lot of weight of its own. So women aren't just running around going, oh, I'm going to get an abortion. Let me just right. do that. Let's talk about the
0: unfolding. I feel that you're doing something I wish more fiction writers would do, which is the great challenge of our time. How do we talk about this madness? The seminar I teach at Columbia, it's called Weird Fiction as a Political Tool, and it's just basically...
1: I would love to see your reading list and syllabus for that class. I think it's interesting because... Theoretically, we say, oh, the personal is the political. And I also teach a class in writing political fiction and trying to help people describe what that is from the most sort of intimate moments that can be within a relationship to the large-scale, international, global screen. And I also am very interested, as one sees in the unfolding, in the domestic. And so this was a chance in this book to write big and small, large-scale, large-scale, American political landscape and also American familial landscape right. and how that all evolves. I don't feel like that many people are doing that kind of thing. I always think of Don DeLillo and Philip Roth and, and yeah. Joan Didion, but I think my generation and under, there's yeah, not under that, that much of children. it. And I think it's really interesting and really difficult right now to think about how to do that. But I do think exploring one's own time with an eye towards the political is really important. Because the other thing, too, that we all forget is the art that comes out of any given period is really also how the period is remembered and how the period is studied.
0: As a culture, we see more and more to have a kind of amnesia about what just even happened yesterday.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm always fixated on. Uh, American amnesia, that's a book that we should write together. Because this
0: takes place starting on the night Barack Obama Wins the election that
1: into yes 2008 2009 so his first election
0: and then into him taking over the white house that is an era that is so ripe with stuff i think that the war that was going on during that time was a huge deal as a former marine, marine i was really obsessed with it but the rest of america was none
1: that's the other yeah. thing is i don't think yeah. anyone thinks about that time period and thinks there was a war they're like there wasn't a war
0: with right? mass shootings george mm-hmm. w so, uh, repeal the assault weapons ban. What were some of the challenges? Because I think your novel, in some ways, starts off as like a spy novel. There's malevolent things brewing under the surface yeah. that are hidden. And Barack Obama coming in to the White House being our first black president.
1: The choice to set the novel, which is very much in some ways about how we got to January 6th, right? Because right. the re- novel is really about how we got to now. Yep. And the choice to set it in this period between the election inauguration of 2008, I wanted to begin to illustrate how the racism and sexism that was always latent, obviously, when, and had never really gone away. But right. when Obama was elected, it also became much brighter and louder. I think older white men got really scared. And so there absolutely is this sense of what is the underlying threat? And the question too is, and my editor in England said to me, these guys in your book are talking about the need to reclaim America and their investment in democracy. What are you talking about? And I said, because the word democracy right now means different things to different people. Right. Even just the word America. What is your America? And it's not a unified thing right now. And that is really scary and really dangerous. Just yeah. like the flag suddenly belongs to the far right. And how did they get the flag? Capture the flag. We want the flag back. It should so, belong to anybody.
0: It is an endlessly fascinating topic to me. Like, yeah. What happened, what were those central portions? Is there any kind of film thing going on with this book? Because There that
1: should is, be. Is that there should to say. be. There's not, and I don't understand it. We're in the strike now, but I would say when that strike is over, I got to get back on that because it's ridiculous. Was there any particular
0: writers you were channeling with this book? I mean, to me, it's like the dialogue is, this could be Elmore Leonard.
1: You know, my background is a little bit from theater. That was where I started. Mostly comes from like a Harold Pintery, Edward Albee, Mamet even, very clips. Always condensed. I love DeLillo, that blend of history and fiction. And Philip Roth. And with DeLulu, I really love those early books. I admire
0: the later palaces that he built, Underworld in Zone. There was a little bit more of a comic note there.
1: You know, you're right. And that reminds me of Stanley Elkin and Saul Bellow and that whole world that did have a little bit more of the humor element. And Joseph Heller, for me, is a big one. The truth is, for me, it's, it's a lot of male writers. How do you feel about that? I never really talk about this. It's a bummer to me the way in which books are sold to readers by gender and, yeah. and even the, the unfolding somebody said to me who do you think this book is for and I couldn't decide if they meant who do you think will read it who is it rooting for I didn't even know sort of where Money, to go with that question Grace Paley was my teacher, and she used to say, women have always done men the favor of buying their books and reading them, and men have not returned that favor. I think for me in particular, that sucks because I don't write chiclet. I'm like, guys, get my book. You'll like it. I promise it won't give you girl cooties. Have you found over time guys have dug your what? From the very beginning, I used to get, with Safety of Objects, I would get all these letters from, like, young male math students. (laughs) I don't know what. Graduate degrees in math, I was really hot with those guys. Yeah. But I would say the publishing industry and the way books are marketed and sold, and and even when you look at the way reviews are assigned, it's genderized in a way that I just think, like, why? I actually think podcasting is the future for book communities. Because it's a conversation, and so it's much more in-depth. I went through a whole very long phase of reading all about the Vietnam War, and I still think they were among the most brilliant books I ever read. And i think they really need to be read and we all need to read that we need to understand the variety of experiences when i was growing up and probably when you were growing up people watched abc cbs and nbc and they watched the evening news and they got the local paper and there was a kind of consensus so i wouldn't even say an agreed upon point of view but a consensus where people okay i can accept that i can accept this narrative And then the internet happened. So when I wrote the book, there was the idea that the algorithm had at least 5,000 data points for each person. I would bet you that's 15 or 25,000 now, meaning they can slice each of us so thin, they know more about what we're going to need, how long we're going to live, what we ate yesterday, what shoes we're wearing, than we even know about ourselves. And that has changed the political landscape. So on the one hand, it is the American dream, but also... The american secret poisoning but it's not even in your drinking water it's actually just information it's that's dots and dashes and data i don't think the average american or the average fiction writer is that aware of the impact that all of the information about us floating around has on our political system including the fact that obama was the first time that we really saw social media used to raise money and now there is this incredible influx of what they call dark money It's not even that dark anymore because you know that it's coming from lettered Leo and it's not 10,000 anymore or 100,000, but it is billions of dollars and billions of dollars buys you elections. That's the the unfortunate piece of it. We don't want to believe that because we want to believe we're really good. We're better than that. But we're gullible. We're really naive, too, in a beautiful way. I didn't feel that you were skewering
0: people to the degree that they were just these tools for you to make statements. There was empathy or compassion, even for the most reprehensible among them.
1: That's That's always the way I am. I don't write to call out people. I'm writing about human behavior. And this notion that we have in contemporary literature where people are like, am I supposed to like these characters? I think that is so new. I don't care. I'm not writing them for you to like them or not. I'm writing them for you to understand them and to think about how they make you feel and what they make you think about. And often to show people the interior world of someone who may be unfamiliar to them.
0: The more I interact with people, I don't think it's easy for a lot of people to conceive or imagine what it might feel like to be somebody else.
1: Absolutely. I have that all the time with my students and they're like, I can only write about things that have happened to me. And what happened to the notion of walking a mile in someone's shoes? And I think we're at a very particular moment because in theory, a lot of people say, you shouldn't write about an experience that's not your own. And I think, how do we understand each other? How do we make sense of our world? If I was limited to only writing my experience, number one, I would have written two books and not 13, and I wouldn't like them because it's not interesting enough for me. I'm fascinated by the thing that I am different from. I'm curious. I want to know how do people think? How do they feel? What compels them to do what they do? I love the imagination. How has your pedagogy evolved as you've navigated this changing terrain? I think it is a really complicated time to be a student and a hard time to be a student because it feels very charged and there's a lot at stake and nobody wants to get it wrong. And so what happens is then everybody's either backs away or digs in, but either way it's not great. So that right. it's difficult. And I think that's the first thing to acknowledge. I always tell my students that being around me will be upsetting. So, Interesting, yeah, yeah. Because that's, we're supposed to avoid being upsetting. And right. it's not that I'm going to say something stupid. It's that I'm going to be challenging and I am challenging and I want to be challenging and I want them to challenge me. Part of it I think always is in the classroom is building a community where people feel comfortable and and let's try to work it out together. And if somebody upsets you, say something. And if you don't feel able to say something, then tell me and we'll try to figure it out. I think the biggest thing right now is I look at a a school like Princeton, which has just these kids who come from all over the world and they are so smart, but you don't get into Princeton by living in your imagination. You get in because you're really good at these markers and you have enormous ele- intellectual capacity. So I view my job as one where I am actually saying 10 years from now, we don't even know what the jobs will be. We have no idea what the world we'll live in is. Yeah. So if you're going to be a leader in the future, you actually have to use your imagination. You have to be able to conceptualize that which does not exist. So I see what I'm teaching is use of the imagination that can be applied to whatever field, most of these students are not going to be writers, which to me is part of what makes Princeton so special because I'm teaching economics and history and computer science students. Right. And we get to play and really learn to make something where there was nothing. And that to me is the work of the future, which is like the creation of the internet. And so I feel like if I can help them to be inventive, then I've done okay. Yeah, And the other piece of it, as we all know, is that the last few years have been especially hard on younger people because we've been around for a while and we've seen ups and downs and we have some context. And yes, was the pandemic thoroughly weird? It was the weirdest thing ever. And did time turn into a liquid? Absolutely. But we have a little bit more resilience. And I would say that the younger people took it hard. And I think all the more classes like creative writing and and arts classes... Are a way of of finding language or expression of some of that experience, I and mean, it's really important. Let's talk a little bit about your own script writing. Sure.
0: Or, and let's acknowledge the strike. It's a weird time for writers.
1: So what I'll tell you is that I've had this weird other life for probably twenty two years, where I've worked in film and te- I know, right? No one knows that. Where I've worked in film and television, not full time and not all the time, but you know, pretty consistently. So much so that I have a pension and all that. And I sit on the council. I'm an elected member of the Writers Guild. And so it's been really interesting to be part of a labor union and to think about the differences in pay and the money that studios and networks make. And the writer is the least expensive thing, and yet it is the thing that is going to get pinched the hardest right now. Years ago, I did screenplay for the film of my first book, Jack, okay. for Showtime, and then went on. And I worked on the TV show, The L Word, and all my friends said to me, what makes you think you can go write a TV show? And I thought, what makes you think I can sit up all day and have a I job? Part of the L
0: word. That was a major cultural phenomenon. And I think that also brought Ian Carson onto the mainstream. Right?
1: One of the funny things about me working on the L word, I was like, okay, we need more men. So we brought in the psychiatrist Mark Epstein, who's the Buddhist psychiatrist on the show. Yeah. Wally Shawn wanted to be on the show. And then I worked with David Kelly on a Stephen King project. mr mercedes which is so scary i can't even watch the episode that i wrote i've done all kinds of stuff and all kinds of pilots and so on i also think in the same way that we're on the cusp of the writers guild looks at this as an existential crisis and it really is the average tv writer now is not really earning a living we used to think oh you get to be rich as a tv writer it doesn't happen that way anymore there's not residuals and In the end, the entertainment companies really don't care about the quality of the entertainment. I look at when the film industry has gone through sort of several iterations of this. It was always for me a moment when more independent film would spring up. And then people will make things that will go on the internet. But the idea of working in film and television is going to be different going forward. And the money is lower. Why is that? Why do we have to go back and actually have a rollback? So screenwriters are actually getting paid less than they used to get paid, which is like ridiculous because it's not like things cost less. Um, Meanwhile, like the CEO of Disney believed salary has increased like four. So writers want to be sure that their scripts are not written by AI so that every script will actually still have an author. They want to make sure they are hired for enough weeks that they can earn an actual just living. So writers, when you sell a, a project. You get paid up front. You don't get residuals, which residuals are what you used to get for every time the thing aired. That's how you buy your groceries next week. And so I hope that the writers don't cave. I don't think there's any reason to cave. What we're asking for is really fair and not a lot. And the idea that literally people who work hard and put in enormous years of effort cannot earn a living That's not okay. In an industry where there's enormous amounts of money being made, we're not talking about an industry where other people aren't making money either. Somebody's making a lot of money. Are there
0: any books that you've been reading of late or just books you'd recommend?
1: One of my favorite writers who I'm very keen to get word out about because he died and was one of my best friends is Randall Keenan.
0: Was he at the University of North Carolina? I've read a little, but it's been a long time.
1: So Randall was a, a black gay guy from North Carolina, a magical realist of the South and just loved Marquez and these stories of growing up in this very rural uh, environment, the characters and the and, and people who lived around him, just truly brilliant. And he literally just, as we would say, up and died a couple years ago, two weeks before his last book came out. And that was nominated for National Book Award. He also wrote this incredible book called Walking on Water where he traveled historically through Black America. So there were all these different communities from like Alaska up to the Inkwell in Cape Cod, right all over the place, charting the Black experience. And it's an amazing book that just everybody should look at it. So Randall is cool. my number one. And then I'd say very much change of pace is the writer Maria Popova, who people know a lot for her brain pickings now called the Mar- yep, She yep. wrote a book called figurings. And what I love about her besides the fact that she writes nonfiction, like a poet, she writes so beautifully, but she also was often talking about this weave of science and literature and science and creativity. And I secretly am such a science nerd. I nothing I love better than like a good black hole story. And so that book figurings, I love a lot. And then my most favorite recent writer is this young man, Henry Hoke, who I had never heard of, and then he published his book recently called Open Throat, which to me is, I so rarely think, i like, I would have wanted to write that book. It's this point of view of a gay mountain lion in Los Angeles who was contemplating who he might eat or what he might eat yeah. and just the world around him. It is so beautiful and so fascinating how he also captures the way the mountain lion hears the people, hikers talking in LA. He's just a super cool young writer.
0: I mean, gay mountain lion contemplating eating people in California. Like, how can I not? I will put all of your information in the show notes and links so that people can go buy The Unfolding and some of your other books and check out articles about you. This is really a huge honor. It's such
1: a treat. So I'm going to have to come up there and and meet you, or you're going to have to come down here or somewhere in Boston.
0: Okay, so that was amazing, right? Now is when you go buy a copy of A.M. Holmes's new novel... The Unfolding, and I've included a link that you can go to to buy that novel on Bookshop. I've also included a link to her iconic Barbie story, and I'll also be including links to uh, her story collection, The Safety of Objects, and a couple of other books. Now, if you want to go follow A.M. on Twitter, she is at... NYC novel. And if you want to come say hi to me on Twitter, you can. It's at Gabe Hudson. Uh, on Instagram, it's at Gabe G. Hudson. And if you want to go subscribe to the podcast and newsletter over on Substack, that would be a terrific birthday gift. And if you're seldom inclined to go to Apple Podcast app or Spotify and just write a brief five-star review, that is actually a tremendous help for the show because it makes the algorithm show our show to other people so that new listeners can discover the beauty of this enterprise. Stay safe out there, people.